If you're going to say no to sin, you have to have a more compelling yes. You cannot just stand in front of temptation and say, no, 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 no. You have to run from temptation to something that you have come to experience and understand is more precious in your life. Well, we're in a series in the life of Joseph called God at Work When We Can't See Him. And what we're doing in this series is, is recognizing the fact that we follow an invisible God and we have been called to live by faith. But the Bible gives an uh, understanding of how God works so that we can know how to anticipate him and try to discern what he might be doing in situations and circumstances where we would otherwise just feel like we can't make sense of them. This morning, we're looking at how to deal with temptation. Uh, some of you may, may know the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a, uh, a famous British journalist of the 20th, 20th century and uh, converted to Christianity later in life and had deep regrets about the way that he had lived. Uh, he was a heavy drinker, a womanizer, and he... Uh, in looking back early on the earlier part of his life, uh, really felt uh, shame and also made a clear break from his past and uh, went very vocally and decisively in a different direction. After he graduated from Cambridge University, he moved to India where he taught English for three years. And it was there that, that it really launched his writing career as his correspondence back and forth with Mahatma Gandhi on the subject of war and peace, those, those letters, that correspondence ended up getting published uh, in an Indian magazine, which uh, really got some attention for him and uh, started his career as uh, a writer and then a journalist. Now, it was one, one day as he was walking uh, along a, a, a river early evening, he spotted someone, a woman, on the other side of that river who was bathing in, in the river. He described the, the situation. He later wrote that his heart began to race with what he called the wild unreasonableness, which is called passion. He was overcome, jumped into the water, made his way across the river. As he began to approach the woman, she turned around and he saw that she was a toothless, deformed leper who was uh, uh, there bathing in the water. And that, as, as she turned around and he recognized uh, who it was and how, what he had been attracted to, he turned around, swam back to the other side, and did so in horror. He would later write about that moment, and he said, the real shock was not the leper, but the condition of his own heart with what he called the dark appetites overcoming his weak will. He said, if I could paint, I would, I'd make a wonderful picture of a passionate boy running after that and call it the lusts of the flesh. I wonder if you have ever been shocked by the condition of your own heart or soul. I wonder if you've ever felt the horror 
of what he calls dark, darker appetites overwhelming a weaker will. Whether you have ever felt uh, drawn by the beauty of temptation only then to be repulsed by the ugliness of it. We know in the beginning of the Bible, in fact, the beginning of the book of Genesis that we're in right now, it begins with the story of a man who seems to have almost everything. And yet, he falls into sin and grabs the one thing that is forbidden him. Well, the book of Genesis ends with another story, another story of another man who also seems to have almost everything, and he resists sin and denies himself the one thing that is forbidden him. Joseph is going to give us a different picture of life and temptation than Adam did. And it's a story of hope. It gives us a picture of how we are to deal with uh, the temptations that we all face. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, 39, uh, verses 6 to 12 on the, in the Black Church Bibles under the rack in the seat in front of you. It's on page 31. Genesis 39, verses 6 to 12. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. This is the word of God. Now, the first takeaway from this story is clearly the most basic. Resist sin by cutting it off and getting away. Half-hearted measures that justify sin that don't deal seriously with compromise, just don't work. We need to take decisive measures. We cut it off. We get away. Now, last week, we saw Joseph sold into slavery. As he was sold by those uh, Ishmaelite uh, human traffickers, he is purchased by a man named Potiphar. He's an important official in, uh, in Pharaoh's court. He has influence, power, and he would have great riches. So Joseph is now going to work in a luxurious home with many people. It's like a, a, a small operation with uh, agriculture and uh, uh, various business dealings. And Joseph quickly rises through the ranks. He becomes uh, the head of this operation and everything is entrusted to him. Uh, we learn that he is handsome in form and appearance. Joseph is actually the only man in scripture so described. There's some people who are handsome, but this guy, 
is, he is called handsome in form and appearance. And it, in Hebrew, it's the exact same words that is used to describe his mother, Rachel. He's a cross between Idris Elba and Liam Hemsworth. And you might think, oh, that's a great thing. Unfortunately, that's not always a blessing. And we see the, the temptations that that brings and the actual vulnerabilities that that brings into his life. Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, has all of the luxuries that uh, her position, her status can afford. Uh, she is a woman of wealth, a woman of means. Uh, she has time, and instead of scrolling Instagram, she's looking at Joseph. She spends her days looking at him, admiring him, looking for ways and opportunities to be around him. A look becomes a stare, a stare becomes a fixation, and verse 7 tells us, she cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. It's crude and direct. It's a command, not an invitation. She's clearly using her position to get what she wants and uh, what... Uh, what, what feels like, oh, maybe this is just a one-time thing, verse 10 tells us, no, this happened day after day after day. What started as a secret distraction turned into sexual harassment and attempted rape. And it's given for us as a picture of the ugly consequences of sin. That sin never just sits where we want it. It always takes us farther than we want to go, uh, it, it seeks to control, it seeks to enslave, uh, it seeks power over us. Covenant Eyes is an accountability software that I often recommend to people. And I do so because it gives uh, an, it reports, it analyzes the images on a person's screens and sends them uh, with a little weekly report to a parent, a spouse, a uh, a friend that can provide uh, accountability and support. It takes what can be a private temptation and just provides the, the, the transparency for uh, you to have uh, someone at your side, some encouragement and support. Well, they shared some of the prayer requests that they get from people who have found their site and decided to get that kind of uh, support. Uh, prayer requests from people when they sign up. One university student wrote, I've been battling a porn addiction for years now. I feel so incredibly distant from God. Often I try to focus on him when I'm tempted, but it's almost like I can actually hear my inner heart saying, reject him. Another person said, please pray for me. My porn addiction is killing me. I try to stop, but then I keep failing all the time. I hate myself so much. I feel so alone and depressed. Those testimonies, the, 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 the words of Potiphar's wife and the, the, the path that it led her down, they remind us that, of the power that sin can have in our lives. And, and it's, a, it's a warning to us to not believe the lie that says, it's harmless, it won't affect you. It's not that big a deal. It would have been easy for Joseph to tell himself, this is 
This is unavoidable. This is natural. He was a, a young, good-looking guy. Uh, as a slave, he didn't have prospects for marriage. Uh, he has a, uh, a high-ranking uh, Egyptian like Potiphar. She's, she, he's going to have an attractive wife, and she's offering herself to him. Besides, she's his boss, and so it's, it's essentially his duty. It's not like he, he has an opportunity to say no. He, he could easily justify this as unavoidable. This is just part of the package. Sin tries to justify itself like that. But here, unlike Adam, Joseph refused. He tells us that we can just say no. We can resist and cut it off. Now, one of the ways that he did that was by remembering the people that sin hurts. Any of you Bible trivia you know, people here, um, anybody know the name of Potiphar's wife? Potiphar's wife? No? This is very disappointing. Actually, it's a trick question. We don't, we're never told the name of Potiphar's wife in Scripture. We're, we're, we're never told that name, and it's not because the Bible is sexist. It's actually telling us one of the ways that you avoid temptation. In verse 7, she's called his master's wife. In verse 8 again, his master's wife. Then in verse 9, his wife. Again, the Bible's not being sexist. It's telling us how you resist the temptations in your life. Joseph could have, uh, could have seen her just as, uh, as Jasmine or Nadia or whatever her name might have been, but instead he chose to see her in relation to the man to whom he owed his loyalty. He, he would not just look at her uh, without recognizing who she was. Who, 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 who she was committed to, uh, who she was in relationship with. It's a good reminder. When you're tempted to look at a person who stirs your lust, remember that's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. Remember who that person is because sin seeks to dehumanize people. It, it seeks to treat people like objects rather than recognizing who they are and how they deserve to be treated. We also see in his response how he, he doesn't want to not only hurt his relationship with his master to whom he owes his loyalty, he, you see how he recognizes his, uh, his relationship with the Lord. And he doesn't want to, to do something that would grieve him or hurt him. Now, some of you feel that, and you wish that you didn't give in to sin. You wish that it didn't have the power over you that, you that it does. But the reality is, as you're honest with yourself, you kind of take half-hearted measures to deal with it rather than drastic ones. In verse 10, when Potiphar's wife is making her advances to Joseph day after day, it says, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. He keeps his distance. He actually avoids being in the same room alone with her. And that kind of strong measures to deal with sin and temptation in our world today are often mocked as ridiculous and prudish. 
Uh, we hear stories of politicians and celebrities who have taken strong measures to avoid sin or temptation, and they are mocked and ridiculed for it. And yet, that's the only way that you avoid temptation. You deal with it decisively. You take strong measures, and if that means you're not in the same room, if that means you're keeping your distance, so be it. That's why Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. It's why Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And I'm wondering, as you consider this whole area of temptation, have you taken decisive action to deal with it? Or do you just regret it? Do you flee from sexual sin or just try not to get too deep into it? Have you taken desperate measures or half-hearted ones? So you resist sin by cutting it off and getting it away. Now, if you've heard the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife growing up in Sunday school, that's probably the only takeaway that you heard from this story. And many sermons on Joseph and Potiphar's wife probably listened to half a dozen of them this week. Most of them just stopped there. Sin is bad. Don't do it. Some of them go one step further and they kind of cap it off. Sin is bad. Don't do it. But Jesus will forgive you. But that's, that's not the message of this chapter. Or at least the message of this chapter doesn't start, stop there. Because maybe some of you are saying, I know that sin is bad. I know that I should not do it. I know that Jesus forgives it. But I'm kind of stuck. I keep going back to it. I keep giving in to it. In fact, I, don't find the, I can't seem to find the motivation, Paul, to take those drastic measures. I'm stuck in half measures because, frankly, I don't seem to be willing to, to do anything more than that. And so this chapter actually deals with those kinds of, uh, of, of feelings that we can all experience in our lives. And so the second lesson is resist sin by learning to treasure the presence of God. As God's presence becomes your confidence, as it becomes your hope, you grow to value him more than your sin. Resist sin by learning to treasure the presence of God. Most of you were here last week, and you know that when we talked about Joseph, we said, as he's introduced, there's one thing about Joseph that stands out. We said, if you're going to do a musical about Joseph, you've got to have a really, really fancy coat, right? In fact, his special robe is mentioned five times in that opening chapter to tell us something about Joseph and about his, uh, this thing that made up a big part of his early life. It was the sign that his father loved him the best. It was the symbol of his privilege and of his authority. And his brothers hated him for it. They tore it from him. He sold into slavery, and as he does, everything is ripped from him, and symbolically, as a picture of everything being taken from him, that special robe, that coat is taken from him as well. He feels naked without the symbol of his privilege. He's the man without the coat. He's like the police officer without 
stripped of his badge. He's like the king without the crown. And, and he's feeling like that as we come into uh, this space between chapter 37 and 39, and he is dealing with having to start over. Some people look to their wardrobe as a, as a source of confidence and security. Uh, for other people, uh, they do the same with their money, their career, their achievements. Uh, some people look to uh, their looks or their health or uh, the things that they are able to say and do as a means of uh, their, their confidence in this world. And when those things are taken away, it can be devastating. And in fact, the fear of losing them can begin to control the life. We live in, in fear and anxiety about losing these things that have become our source of security, confidence, and hope. God allows Joseph's brothers to take his coat and everything that he has clung to, everything that he has leaned on up until this point. And so alone in a pit, he is left with just one thing. And that one thing is his dreams. Specifically, the promises from God of God's plans to bless him and to use him in this world. That's all that he has left. But those things become precious to him. He learns to lean on them. We know that because it's in chapter 39, only after J Joseph lost his precious coat, that we hear the name of the Lord in Joseph's story for the very first time. In verse 2, it tells us, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Even Potiphar can see this, this non-Jew, this pagan to uh, Joseph's God, Joseph's religion, he can see that the Lord is, is with him. Verse 3 says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The Lord here is in that all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh. And it's an indication that most likely Potiphar, an Egyptian, is learning about and hearing about, probably from Joseph himself, about his God, about who he is, and what he has accomplished. Potiphar is like, Joseph, there's something different about you. I don't know, you... God just seems to be blessing you. There's something going on. And he says, that's my God. That's Yahweh. That's the Lord. He's with me. I walk with him. He lives with me. He is close to me. Now, it goes beyond that in, in verse 5. If you're writing the musical score, if any of you ever get called upon to write as anything related to Joseph and make some kind of production about it, in verse 5, you need some dramatic music. You bring out the symbols. You do something to create uh, a little bit of atmosphere uh, because there it says, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. That, that's a really important statement because the entire book of Genesis and, and really from there the entire Bible has been seeking to show how 
after humanity broke uh, what God had created, how God is going to seek to redeem, to restore, to heal, and to bless this world. That plan comes into focus in chapter 11 when we're introduced to a man named Abraham. And we learn it's through him that God is going to bring the blessing. In chapter 12, we uh, hear that, uh, that, that great line, he says, I will bless you, he says to Abraham, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so we learn that it's through this line of Abraham, God is going to bless the world. That was Genesis chapter 12. Now, for the last 37 chapters, that hope, that dream, that promise that God was going to bless the world through this line of Abraham, it's just been a promise. There's no fulfillment. It's never happened. But we believe and we're anticipating what God will do. Now, for the first time in Genesis 39, verse, uh, uh, verse 5, we have this indication that not only is God putting his blessing on this line of Abraham, but through them, he is bringing blessing to the nations. He is blessing this Egyptian for Joseph's sake. That promise becoming a reality changes Joseph. It moves him. He, he begins to see something profound in his life. Before he looked to his coat as a symbol of his confidence, his hope, his privilege, his joy, his whatever. And that coat, that symbol created envy and hatred in the people around him. Now, with that stripped away from him, he has learned to put his trust in the presence of God. It is now the presence of God that marks his life. It is now the blessing of God that he most values and treasures. And that blessing of God doesn't bring hatred from the people around him. It, it, it is a means by which they are blessed. They are lifted up. They are receiving the goodness of God and learning about the goodness of the Lord. And, and so it is that experience of God's goodness that, that creates a, a sense of, uh, of longing to experience more and more of that. Joseph has tasted the presence of God and it's like nothing he's ever known. The Lord is precious to him. His presence is valued by him. He wants to guard it and protect it and enjoy more of it. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, Paul, I thought this was a message on temptation. You kind of seem to take a, 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 a detour here, but it, 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 it is intended to be all part of the same package. It's because we need to see that it's the Lord's presence and blessing that motivated Joseph to break with sin. It was the means by which God used to strengthen him, to motivate him, and to guard him. That's what the first six verses of this chapter are teaching. We know that because when temptation hits Joseph, when he recognizes he's going to have to give it up again, and we, we hear not once but two times that he, is, he has somebody grabbing his coat again, threatening to rip it from him, uh, it tells us in verse 12, he left his garment in her hand. 
He doesn't need to hold on to it anymore. He doesn't need to clasp it because he has something that is more precious to him. He knows, I can do without the coat because I have the presence of God. And I won't trade anything for it. I, I, can, I can sacrifice a robe, but I will not sacrifice my Lord. If you're going to say no to sin, you have to have a more compelling yes. You cannot just stand in front of temptation and say, no, 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 no. You have to run from temptation to something that you have come to experience and understand is more precious in your life. You are invited to find that in the Lord himself. That means you need to know the Lord. You need to put your trust in him. If you don't, you have nothing else to run to. All you've got is to try to stir up your willpower to say no. It means you need to experience his presence, his precious. You need to spend time with him. It means that you need to see God's plan for your life, not to just bless you, but to use you as a means to bless others. You need to be on mission with God the way Joseph was. You need to see your life as a channel through which his blessing can flow. That's what motivates you to take drastic measures rather than half-hearted ones. That's what moves you to not just stand in the face of temptation, but to run from it, to, to look to the one who would give you strength. Because you realize sin isn't worth sacrificing the presence of God. You realize sin isn't worth sacrificing the blessing of God. You, you, you've seen what God can do. You've heard what God can do. And you don't want to rob your kids or your spouse or your friends of the blessing that God would otherwise send through you into their lives. It's too precious for that. Sin isn't worth that. You'll give up your special coat and the other symbols of your status and privilege, but you won't give up the Lord. And so we're invited to see how precious God is and to develop a, a relationship with God, to spend time with God, that we would see that and value it uh, to shore up our, uh, our defenses against temptation. So, so far we've said you resist sin by cutting it off and getting it away. Then you resist sin by learning to see and treasure the presence of God. Then finally, we learn you resist sin by believing that the world can't rob you of God's blessing. It can't take away what God has provided and what only he can provide. For Joseph, resisting temptation meant getting on the wrong side of a powerful person. It meant resisting his master's wife. He knew that it would result in her anger. He knew that it would probably cost him his job, his status, all of the things, the comforts about his life. He knew that it would probably cost him his life. Because if, in, in his day, the penalty for a slave to rape or to assault uh, a, 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 the master's wife, in this case, was death. 
So he knew he was putting his life on the line here. But he believed in God's promises and he clung to those dreams and he knew that whatever might come, God's blessing in his life was secure. They could take everything from him, but they couldn't take what was most precious to him. And so he could stand in the face of that. And maybe that's what is one of your vulnerabilities, frankly. Maybe you're struggling to believe that in your life. Maybe you're struggling with an area of obedience because of what it might cost you. Maybe there is a temptation that you're facing this morning and it's a position at work you fear you could be, that could be affected. Or maybe it's your reputation with your friends that you feel you could lose. Uh, maybe it's a guilty pleasure you don't want to live without. Maybe it's a guy you don't want to lose. Maybe it's a girl you don't want to lose. Maybe it's, frankly, it's, it's comfort. It's just too hard. Obedience feels too difficult. And it would be easier just to avoid it. Joseph is willing to lose everything except the blessing of God. He, he, he can't live without that. He, he can't go without that. And in holding on to God's blessing, you see, he didn't end up losing anything at all. That's really the, second me- the, the last message of this chapter. Because while we started off with this statement, hey, Joseph lost everything in 30, chapter 37, it's all taken away, but the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord blessed him, and the Lord used him to be a blessing. Now, as it's taken away all again, we see in the end of the chapter, again, this repeated emphasis, the Lord was with him. The Lord didn't let him go. The Lord was at work in his life. As the chapter ends, Joseph does lose his job. He, he loses his job, his status. We, as we saw, he lost his coat. Potiphar's angry, but he probably suspects Joseph's innocence because if he was really guilty, he'd be dead. Instead, he graciously puts him into a royal prison. It's there that although everything is taken from him, the descriptions of the Lord's blessing and presence end the chapter in almost the exact same way they started it. And hear what it says in verse 21. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph's been here before. He knows what it's like for everything to be taken from him. And he also knows, that's where I found the Lord. That's where I experienced the Lord. I have a security in this blessing that the world can't rob from me, can't steal from me. Even in prison, he has God's presence. Even in prison, God can use him to bless others. Even in prison, the dream is alive. He can cling to God's promises. And so how does that work itself out in your life? Here at Grace, we want people to experience the blessing of God, frankly. 
We want people to come into our fellowship, not only in this room, but in, in groups that meet throughout the week. We want people to, to enter into our fellowship and experience the blessing of God. We want our children, we want our friends to know God's blessing through us. And we want to know the fullness of God's presence in our lives. It's not like God ever runs away. But when we turn our backs on him in sin, we, we lose that sense of his presence. We lose something that should be precious to each one of us. So let's put away the sin. Let's lock the doors to temptation. Let's take drastic measures, not half measures. Let's invite in accountability and confess our sins to one another. Because sin is a poor imitation of what only God can give. Now we could leave it here, but I want to close with just one final objection. Maybe there are some of you who have been listening to this and saying, this is maybe a, well, maybe, maybe like Mark, you're thinking, I hope there's a console, maybe I hope there's a hot meal after this, because this wasn't really enough. Um, maybe, maybe some of you are thinking, this was, this was a message for someone else. Because honestly, I, I don't relate to Joseph. I kind of feel like Potiphar's wife. Maybe if you're honest, you've seen things that you can't unsee. You've crossed lines that you can't uncross. Sin is no longer your distraction. It's become your obsession. Sin is in control. If that's you this morning, believe with conviction that Jesus came to set you free. Believe with conviction that he is the one who, who came not only to, to die for, for, for sinners and to save people who didn't know any better, but he came to set you free when you fell, when you did no better. Come before God in repentance. Confess your sins to him. But don't just confess your sins to him. Confess your sins to another believer whom you respect. Receive God's forgiveness and seek his help to rebuild your defenses. And as you do, picture in your mind the father rushing down that road to welcome the prodigal son as he returned. Picture in your mind that scene Jesus gave us of the angels in heaven rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Remember how Jesus confronted the accusers and those words that he said to the woman caught in adultery. Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, give us your help. Would you lift us out of the shame that we might support one another and minister to one another as we should? Would you deepen our fellowship together that we might not face the battle alone? 
Would you deepen our fellowship with you that we might treasure your presence in our lives? And would you give us the courage, the courage to admit our sins and to take drastic measures to deal with them? 